0: There's going to be some similarities between Stoicism and Buddhism at that level. But I think if you come to these as philosophies, in terms of a metaphysical explanation, a psychological explanation, a meaning of life explanation, there's going to be very, very different. You know, Ethically, we might see some, some broad stroke similarities, you know, seven out of 10 similarity. But in terms of those other things, it's going to be very, very different.
1: Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Trombley and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. Today, Michael and I discuss Stoicism and Buddhism. You can think of it as a Buddhism 101 with a special focus on what Stoics can learn from the ancient religious tradition, uh, especially as it shows up in modern Buddhism before we hop directly into that, I should say that we are enrolling for our October 23rd three-week course on Stoicism Applied. we will be diving into the three Stoic disciplines focused on how one can apply them to become more Stoic. I think one of the best aspects of this course will be the fact that we'll be getting together a group of people who are seriously interested in that project and that project of walking the stoic path so if you're interested in that please join us learn more at stoameditation.com slash course and here is our conversation welcome to stoa conversations my name is caleb antiveros
0: and i'm michael trawley
1: and today we're going to be talking about stoicism and buddhism I think this is one of the most requested topics in that we've had past episodes, one past episode with Gregory Lopez that focused on Buddhist and Stoic mindfulness. We did our own episode on mindfulness, and but Buddhism was more in the background, I'd say, for our episode. And at any rate, this is a oft-requested topic that we'll focus on today. And I think there's a lot of rich overlap between the two schools, a lot that people attracted to Stoicism can and have learned, them, and likely the reverse. But the perspective I'm taking is, you know, the perspective of someone who's really interested in Stoicism has some background in Buddhism channeled through Western forces, I'd say. I can chat a little bit more about that. But I think there's a very fruitful overlap and debates between the two life philosophies
0: yeah and i mean i'm really excited for this discussion kelvin for myself i mean i was actually into into buddhism before i ever got into stoicism i buddhism i think was the kind of first philosophy as a way of life with, that i really you know was interested in and, and dug into i i did never got anywhere near as deep as i am into stoicism or as knowledgeable but it's one that like when I was younger, I thought it was really cool. And so excited for us to discuss some of the similarities, differences with Stoicism today. And especially through this length, I think now I have as, as somebody who's really knowledgeable about Stoicism.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think we'll talk about some of the background, some of the basics of Buddhism, some of the key doctrines, and then move to some of the similarities and initial differences with Stoicism and see how those two things can enrich our ideas of Stoic theory and practice as well. So that's the main point of this discussion. And I should say that by way of disclaimer, two things. First, Buddhism is, of course, an exceptionally complex tradition. You know, it would be like doing an hour on any given religion would by necessity overlook key differences and gloss over things far too quickly. So the forms of Buddhism I'm most familiar with are Western Buddhism. Sometimes it's called Buddhist modernism or secular Buddhism. This form of the philosophy is sort of grounded in Buddhist tradition, Buddhist texts, but it's naturalized. Usually it's removed some of the supernatural elements from Buddhist religion, whether that is, you know, the different say levels of existence, certain views about karma or views about ghosts and lower deities. This form of Buddhism is intends to be naturalistic and fit within a scientific worldview, if you will, without any of the supernatural elements. That's what I'm most familiar with in terms of my background. That's the second other disclaimer I wanted to make. In terms of my background, of course, I'm not a Buddhist. I came across Buddhism first through mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy. So learning about that, the founders of that were heavily influenced by Buddhists. And that I have read a lot. a, a lot, I'd say, a lot of texts that sort of fall into this Buddhist modernism, secular Buddhism. School, if you will, from Owen Flanagan, Robert Wright, the book *The Mind Illuminated*, um, and so on and so on. So that's two quick things. Buddhism is very complex. We're going to be tackling a specific kind of Buddhism here.
0: Yeah, just like I mean, just there's two two Stoics talking about Buddhism here. Something which can be fun to pull some. of. It'll be interesting, but I'm almost certain that we will get some things wrong. <laughs> yeah, I feel that way still when I talk about Stoicism. So I'm almost certain there's going to be instances where you or I will say things like Buddhism says this or Buddhism argues this, and there will be definitely a nuance to that, either in the content or in even the separate schools or the separate divisions of them, in a way that I'm I'm not aware. I, I think you know in, in an hour there's going to be some generalizing, but that that's still hopefully going to be informative and put people in a better place to dig deeper.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and we will have Buddhist scholars as well as people who identify as Buddhist practitioners on the podcast. So stay tuned for that. But for now, you're stuck with us. So let's start at the very beginning with the Buddha. So Buddha Buddha is just a term for enlightened one, a knower. Siddhartha Gautama lived in the 5th or 6th century BC, and he is was, if not exactly a noble, someone who lived in a luxurious, sheltered, and pleasant existence. The founding parable of Buddhism involves him waking up from this clean, polished world to make three trips. And in these trips, he sees different forms of suffering. He sees an elderly man who is suffering from aging, he will clearly pass, and that can be seen from the features of his face. There, Then on another trip, he sees a sick man, someone who is diseased and suffering from their physical affliction. And then finally, during his third trip, he sees a corpse, a dead man. And this trip brought Buddha sort of face-to-face with suffering that he had not known in his Prior existence, and because of this experience, because of these experiences, he renounces his life of luxury and turns to religious traditions, religious uh, experiences. He begins a religious quest, and I won't go through all the different traditions he joins that he excels in. The main idea is that tip he started with these sort of extreme meditative or extreme ascetic traditions. So this involves rigorous meditation r- regimes. It involves things like uh, going w- without the goods of the material world. And uh, through these experiences, he comes to see that enlightenment falls in between the extremes of his life of luxury and extreme religious pursuit falls in a middle way. So I suppose if you take this, these themes from the parable, there's this encountering of different forms of suffering, this encounter with the reality of the temporary nature of things, and then the turn to religious traditions that aim to answer, you know, why do people age and die? Why do we suffer? And then through the Buddha's religious experience experimentation and pursuit he comes to become awakened he experiences enlightenment and he finds that it's not in these extremes in this pursuit of pleasure pursuit of rejecting the world almost in these radical religious traditions but instead falls in a path that uh is called the middle way, which we'll talk about a little bit more. But that's uh that's the first pass for I think a useful founding parable for the Buddhist tradition.
0: Yeah. I mean so so two things to add there. I mean first this is often people often mention this, but it's kind of interesting that Buddha is a contemporary of Socrates, you know, or or around the same time as this. So just to situate that historically, we're talking about Know, around the same time that that ancient Greek philosophy is getting off the ground, the other thing Caleb, with this, I'm always interesting. I'm always interested in why he is a because Buddha's or Siddhartha is a, a prince, right, or some sort of some sort of royalty, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, he's taken to be either a noble or someone whose father is very well off
0: yeah I'm always interested in that I'm interested in this kind of starting in this position of being very noble or very rich or very well off like i i I wonder about the i don't know the symbolism or the lesson there um of somebody starting in that position and then i guess getting exposed to more instead of you know you would think wouldn't the person why would that? Why would the person who starts a noble is sheltered and then encounters the world be in a better position to navigate that world than the person who is already navigating that world and somebody who's not sheltered and already sees elderly, sick people and dead people consistently? I always i and I understand part of that's historical, part of that's the parable, but I always thought that idea that you know Siddhartha or the Buddha uh, starts off very well off is an interesting part of his story.
1: Yeah, I suppose part of it is this thought that, of course, there are different sociological reasons, but maybe the more interesting kind of reason may be that Siddhartha is in a place where so many people aspire to be and learns that that is not enough and that even though he is sheltered, he cannot escape suffering just as it, it might take a little bit longer to reach his abode, his life um, and he, but he cannot uh, escape it as he learns during his during his trips
0: yeah that makes sense and So this kind of experiential knowledge of hey even though I've kind of conquered the material world this is still not enough or I have access to these material goods mm-hmm. the answer is not here and some, so somebody from that position has that kind of experiential knowledge. You know, this is this is not enough, and then he's able to kind of move on.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's I think that's that's one reason. And then he, after becoming enlightened, he essentially becomes a religious teacher, and because he has that noble past, I think that gives him some amount of credentials, I suppose, some amount of family prestige that he's able to travel to different areas teach what he has learned and promote the messages of buddhism one one is interesting similarity between stoicism and buddhism is that neither are named after their founder as such so although of course siddhartha Gautama is the buddha all Buddha means is just the enlightened one, a knower. It's a title, and Stoicism derives from the porch. Unlike many other philosophical schools or indeed religions that are often named after their founders.
0: Yeah. And so in the in the Stoic tradition, making these analogies or these comparisons, it's kind of like the Buddha is the sage, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the it's the one who's a uh, you know the. The end of the, the ends, the thing that you're trying to get to, but maybe Buddha or Siddhartha was the first one, but is not, it's not the only Buddha and it's not, it's not his way. It's the way of, of, you know, enlightened people.
1: Right, right. So I want to get to some of these key, key doctrines. The often mentioned as key, sort of key ideas are the, uh, I think a fru- fruitful place to start is with the four noble truths. So these are four claims about the nature of reality. And those four are the truth of suffering, this thought that life is suffering. That's the first. The second, the truth of arising, usually explained in terms of the root of suffering is craving. The third is the truth of cessation, just this idea that the craving can cease the cause of suffering can be addressed. And then finally, the fourth is the truth of the path. The way to cease craving, combat desire is through the eightfold path. And that's this middle way. But let's let's say some more about each of those. So when we're talking about suffering, essentially the way this is typically explained is that life necessarily involves frustrated desire it's necessarily unsatisfied uh, a given thing we get it and then we experience more craving more more of us this you know we uh, want more and more of whatever thing whether that's a sensual pleasure existence and destruction so that's the truth of suffering first just sort of that main claim the second truth, the truth of arising, what's the cause of suffering, the fact that we have desires, we have cravings. In particular, there's focus on the cravings for sensual pleasure, a desire for existence, a desire for being, a hope that things would not be impermanent, but rather we would exist internally. The things we want will exist eternally. And then also these Dark, um, darker desires for destruction. The wants to destroy other things. So those are the first two. Life is suffering. The root of suffering is desire. Any thoughts on that, Michael?
0: Well, I just, there might be a translation thing here, but what is arising? Like, like so. There's there. If you said something like the truth of craving, so there's the truth of suffering, life is suffering. The truth of arising which is that the root of suffering is this craving. But what's 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 arising?
1: Well, I, my read on this is just that suffering has a cause. Why is it arising? Uh, it, the, the root of suffering is craving. That's the suffering
0: is coming from somewhere. That's mm-hmm. what the arising is. Yeah, yeah. If, if you wanted to put, kind of-
1: put these in a really abstract form, it's something like life is suffering. Suffering has a cause that cause can be addressed the way it's addressed finally is through the path.
0: Yeah. And then what is suffering? Is suffering like just a subjective experience? Like it's just subjective pain? Like what is, what's suffering? Putting you on the spot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's generally explained in terms of subjective pain, negative mental states, anguish. But I think, we can say it's that's one aspect of it. Another aspect, I think, is just the fact that what we prefer does not come to pass. And maybe that doesn't have to do with mental states, you know, always. Often it does. Often if, we, if our desire is frustrated, we know about it and we experience that as suffering or at least frustration but sometimes what we want what we prefer doesn't happen and we don't know about it and that may still be perceived as a bad as a harm as another fact at least on the surface that you know life is suffering you wish you could have a legacy you think the people who Live after you will keep their promises and so on but of course there's so much contingency in life and many of your preferences are just not going to be respected by others or the world at large
0: yeah and that sounds very stoic to me right this idea of you know you want things to be a certain way and when those desires are frustrated that causes suffering but another thing that looking at this again this, from a Hellenistic philosophy lens, I'm getting a lot more Epicureanism than I'm getting Stoicism. This focus on subjective experience, this focusing on not virtue or character, but really pleasure and pain. This focus on the, the elimination of pain as a primary goal. you know, Striking me as much more Epicurean at this moment, but I'm, I'm interested to see what that Eightfold Path makes up, because maybe that will pull us towards you know, virtue and character, but Yeah, very Epicurean, very kind of hedonistic almost.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think another thing to say here is that many people hear life is suffering and think that Buddhism is a negative philosophy, a cynical philosophy. And there's certainly something to that. I think many Buddhists would claim that in our ordinary existence, we are blind to the truth of suffering. We don't understand the extent of suffering and indeed how this truth is present in ordinary mundane experiences and there's something essential about the fact that we are desiring creatures and our desires uh, are frustrated again and again but nonetheless it's not a completely negative philosophy of course life is not just suffering that's not that's not the claim at all but let's let's keep the let's keep the thought on uh, the point about epicureanism is is interesting and i think we should we should return to that because i think that is it seems plausible to me that is Almost a better comparison in terms of Hellenistic philosophies, but all right. So now we're we've got the first two noble truths: truth of suffering, truth of arising. We come to the truth of cessation. The thought is just that all right, the root of suffering is desire; it's craving. These uh, desires, if they are released, if will result. In no more suffering. So the way to combat suffering is through releasing these desires. This, of course, brings us to the fourth noble truth, the truth of the path. Okay, the third truth was good news, but how do you fulfill it? That's what the number four is all about. The way to cease craving is through this eightfold path, this middle way and it's a bit difficult to keep all three all eight of these in your head but ultimately they focus on wisdom morality and meditation and i think this is the part where in our initial parable we found that buddha came to enlightenment by pursuing a middle way not one of these extremes and the way that this is realized is by following the eightfold path which involves wisdom right understanding, right resolve, right speech, morality, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and then meditation, right mindfulness, right uh, meditation.
0: And which of those, which of those, I guess, Caleb, do you think are worth pulling into in greater detail or or might be like, I mean, I think I understand what those mean. You say those words and I think I understand those words. But are any of those a bit different than we might suspect?
1: Yeah, I think go, unpacking these will takes a serious amount of... But I th- what, what we can say here that I think is most useful is you have these ideas of meditation, which we'll talk about more, which are commonly associated with Buddhism, but you also have morality, wisdom. And these features do get us very close to virtue ethics, really. It's about being the kind of person who takes on the right livelihood, who does the right thing, speaks well, but doesn't just speak well, sees things as they are, the right understanding, has the right intention, and so on. It, you know, I think it immediately brings to mind the Aristotelian idea of someone who acts virtuously, is doing the right thing at the right time, for the right reasons and i do think there's a decent a a good amount of overlap between the that sort of virtue ethic lens and these aspects of the path which are all about fine-tuning your speech actions intentions and then realizing that in your actions livelihood and so on okay so so
0: yeah um in both stoicism and epicureanism They're about eliminating suffering, but you don't eliminate suffering by getting rid of craving. What you do is you eliminate suffering by changing the object of what you crave. So in stoicism, you crave character, and that's something that you always have access to. You always have the ability to improve. It's not dependent upon anything else. So there's no suffering that comes from external to you. If you if you just want to be a good person, then you set yourself on that goal. In Epicureanism, you crave things that are easily obtainable. So a uh, community with a couple friends and some you know some vegetables and potatoes and things like this. Well my, I guess my next question is is and you might be getting to this but how would this eightfold path eliminate suffering especially if suffering comes from craving?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I should say that I my sense is that there's some amount of debate about whether say desire is completely eliminated or not. But I think, you know, the as I the sorts of desires that cause suffering are, that there would be minimal debate on, if any, are these desires for sensual pleasure, existence, and destruction, whether the sorts of desires for more positive aspects of existence are the sorts of things are, that are also released or maybe released at later stages. I think is another issue, but I think the main focus is, okay, so we have this picture of the Eightfold Path. How does it actually take us to a life without these cravings? And I, I want to say that this Eightfold Path is, again, taking this virtue ethics frameworks about becoming a kind of person, and in particular internalizing the nature of the world as Buddhists see it, and then realizing that in your action. So suffering is exceptionally negative. You want to reduce suffering. So you have these ideas of compassion for all beings. And in that aspect, you're going to see that in morality, compassion for All beings involves releasing suffering both from yourself and for others. And then wisdom and meditation are going to involve seeing the world as it is and internalizing some of these key Buddhist tenets about the nature of reality. So, And I think many people who've heard a bit about Buddhism will be familiar with ideas like everything is impermanent. The nature of the world is empty. All things are ca- uh, causally interlinked. Everything, uh, to be very coarse, it's uh, connected. It's almost like you have this karmic, these karmic principles. And then finally, you have this illusion of a separate self. And these are the sorts of things that, especially these modern Buddhists are going to say, you can realize these truths, the truth of impermanence, emptiness, connectedness, and the illusion of a separate self, in deep meditation. And these truths will help you become more moral and help you make wise decisions. You have this sort of this interlinking, which is very similar to the interlinking of the three Stoic disciplines, building up wisdom, morality, meditation is going to focus, you know, your mind, your actions, your character towards being the kind of person who reduces suffering for yourself uh, and for others.
0: Okay. So these are kind of like, these are mistakes we can make or misunderstandings about the nature of the world. You know, you think of something like the Stoic dichotomy of control. It's just, just, you know, this pretty clear, easy to understand idea that, you know, some things aren't up to you. And if you treat them like you're up to you, you're going to suffer. And so there's the same kind of thing with impermanence. The world isn't permanent. Uh, I'm not permanent. You know, the, the life of the people that I care about aren't permanent, and if I treat them like they are, that kind of craving is going to cause suffering. So it, it, it's something like this, and then, and then it, it, except it's now it's also about, you know, the, also this idea of the self, conception of the self, that's another thing that causes suffering, which we also see in stoicism, although maybe in a different sense. In Buddhism, there's this idea of no self. You know, or 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 that the self itself is is an illusion, at least to at least to some degree. And in Buddha, in Stoicism, I think there's this like reconceptualization of what the self is. So the, when I was in, when I w- was first studying these, I would think about Stoicism as the kind of reduction of the self to an essential core and that is mm-hmm. that is like a, a, a diamond that you can't break. And I would kind of I, I saw Buddhism as kind of the expansion of the self across everything. Maybe that's related to that idea of causal interdependence, so that you kind of dissolve the self out. But in either way, you're playing around with the size and the shape of the self, certainly differing from what normal people think it is, which is, you know, I, I'm Michael and I am my career and my friends and my reputation and my body and things like that. Like we're playing around with those concepts in order to eliminate the suffering that comes with that, both because it's suffering and because it's false. Is that right? Because that sounds that sounds really similar to Stoicism just kind of maybe taking it a different direction, but attacking these false beliefs.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, there's a the Stoicism, sort of like the minimal self model, and then Buddhism so, is no self. And they have a high degree of overlap. So if you look at something like a desire for career success and then bring into these truths, well, whatever success you have is going to be... Meant. It will not last, not just in the sense of your lifetime, but each uh, day is just one day after another. Another, what is something like a career? Notions of emptiness always difficult to describe, but I think one way to come at it is through Marcus Aurelius's decomposition exercises to take a stoic lens. You know, a career just going to some place every day if you're working in person that is and performing some you know physical movements that satisfy the desires of a sick society if you wanted to add some cynicism or also include yes. the truth of the nature of suffering and so those you know those are two, two of the ideas that come into play and i think especially these ideas around impermanence emptiness are really questioning our cravings, you know, why do we want sensory pleasure? If we saw its true nature, we'd see that this desire for some independent, lasting experience is illusory and not going to lead to satisfaction for for ourselves. So, I think just to put this sort of modern lens on this, Robert Wright has a book called "Why Buddhism Is True," and he makes Sort If you could think of it as an evolutionary argument for the usefulness of Buddhism. So the position being argued for is that Buddhism is pragmatically useful for promoting human well-being. And this is so because the Buddhists got so much about human nature right and their cure for becoming better works or is one of the best ones we have. And I think it's it's a or it's a reasonable argument. It's one that's worth taking taking seriously. So I thought so we should we should put it on the table. The one of the main claims is that from the evolutionary standpoint, you know, human beings are not optimized to experience positive well-being. The natural selection selects at the unit of genes, not you know, positive human experiences, or something of that sort. And that means that humans are created to be you know these craving creatures who are never satisfied and were constantly diluted. So we have this notion of the hedonic treadmill, this thought that we do have these cravings for the next thing, whether it's the next material object. Next uh, rank of status or next experience. But as soon as we get whatever that is, we want the next thing that's after that. And of course, you should expect this from evolutionary logic because the human who's always striving is more likely to be evolutionarily successful, you know, as opposed to the human who wants something, gets it, and then relaxes. And no longer, you know, plays any of the, you know, social games that matter for their yeah. reproductive fitness. So I think that's one one useful example. The other example recently had a chat with Randolph Nessie, an evolutionary psychiatrist, and he makes the very compelling argument that you know things like our anxiety control systems are going to be built by logic that's going to push them towards being over-sensitive because the person who is, you know, has a panic attack every time they hear the bush rustling and runs away is going to be more likely to survive than the person who knows nine times out of ten there's nothing in the bushes, but on that one time gets it wrong and there is, in fact, a tiger. There was, in fact, a threat that they should have taken seriously. So the, those, you have this, these ideas of we're not satisfied, we're always craving the next thing. And in fact, our mental machinery is built to ensure that we are not, not just not satisfied, but you know diluted and have these oversensitive emotional systems, have these beliefs that promote things like permanence, these ideas of an ego lasting through time and so on.
0: Yeah, great. I mean, there's a lot. There's two points I want to add to that. The first is there's this idea in statistics, which you're probably familiar with, is this idea of a type one error and a type two error. Type one error is a false positive. Type two is a false negative. So, the the your argument there is that we've been we've been hardwired to have to make type one errors, to have false positives, to have our bodies go, oh, this is a life or death situation, and Situations where it's not, and have that anxious response because it's better to the the downside to that is a subjectively unpleasant feeling with like high stress. Yeah, but the downside to a Type Two error where you say ah it doesn't really matter oh, this person doesn't I'm not going to get a bad vibe when walking by this person in the alley and then you, know, you get mugged or shot or something. The, the the downside to Type Two error is death. So we we biologically developed to have these kind of Type One errors which makes us stressed makes us suffer but but keeps us alive long enough to pass our, pass our genes on the other thing i was the other thing i was thinking about with that connection was i was i was i saw a tweet the other day so let this be this evidence that you can take things of value from twitter i took the, i read this tweet i was like this is a good tweet and it was this it was this kind of joke about how there's this constant setup where people will say you know i don't understand people you know they have all this money, they have this successful job, and they're like unsatisfied. Or, you know, they have a nice house, they've got the, they've got the kids, they've got the husband, and they're unsatisfied. They, 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 there's always this kind of commentary making fun of these people on the tweet was pointing out. Well, it's got the causation totally wrong, right? The reason why these people have achieved success, external success, is because they're kind of an unsatisfied person, because they're the kind of person who is constantly is maybe suffering. Or feels that kind of un, unease or un, or anxiousness, then they go out and they, they construct and then prove their external circumstances they're driven to do that, mm-hmm. and that just connects back to the why Buddhism is true point you're making, which is that you know people who have this kind of sufferings, cravings, anxiety might be biologically in a better position to achieve kind of material success, pass their genes on, so that's kind of a, a biological nature of the of humans. And why we need an antidote to like something like Buddhism and, and like Stoicism that's connecting, you know, I like that point because it's connecting with something that's like has to do really with human biology or, you know, our evolutionary psychology, uh, not, not something that's sociological or cultural. So it's like, you know, any insights that occurred 2,500 years ago, well, those are still, those still stand today because they're making comments about kind of the hardware, our brain hardware not our like you know our cultural cultural moment you know?
1: mm-hmm. yeah 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 right yeah those are two good points yeah so just i think wrap up the sort of the evolutionary argument for buddhism if you will you have those facts about human nature and then the next claim is the way to address these facts to achieve some form of serenity or tranquility is through following what's been set out in this buddhist tradition and doing it in an empirical experimental manner i think will typically be promoted practicing things like meditation in particular both to cultivate the right states of mind cultivate powerfulness and equanimity and then also to come to the sort of experiential insights into the nature of reality where in meditation you see by focusing on the breath focusing on sensations Or what have you? You come to see not just merely in a propositional way, but deeply internalize these Buddhist truths of impermanence, emptiness, the nature of suffering, and the illusion of the separate self. No self.
0: Yeah. So what I was thinking there is this this idea that you know we we have these kind of propositional claims, well, false beliefs about permanence, the nature of the self, causality, these cause us to suffer. But then we actually have this practice in Buddhism of well. The mindfulness is going to allow you to focus on these things and understand them at a deep level. And that's where that 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 that's where that Buddhist practice comes in. It's not just a set of truths that you need to read, but something that you then put into practice through this kind of mindfulness training as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. it makes sense to me. Sweet. So I think we can move to, okay, like at the quick rundown of Buddhism, you know, modern Buddhism 101, if you will. Now, what are some of the sto- similarities with Stoicism? What are some of the differences? What can we take from that? So I think one of the key insights of many philosophical and religious traditions, and Buddhism and Stoicism are no exception, is that the root of so much suffering is our desires and our illusions. The fact that we want things we cannot have, the fact that we have so many beliefs that are mistaken and both cause suffering intrinsically but also our beliefs we end up acting on and making, making mistakes. And I think that's something that Stoicism and Buddhism d- deeply shares and questions. You know, If you think about these, the idea of indifference in Stoicism, the pursuit of pleasure, wealth, status, these sorts of things are things we're always chasing after but are not the sorts of things that ultimately in and of themselves lead to a good life on the stoic picture. And they certainly don't do the same for Buddhists either.
0: Yeah, I think that's that On And then, I mean, if you've got somebody who's just done a a Stoicism 101 and a Buddhism 101, or I think the connection most people make is in this category, the root of suffering being desire and illusion, and specifically a certain type of desire, which is a kind of attachment to use the Buddhist terminology, maybe attachment is a desire for existence. Maybe I think that's mm-hmm. that's what that's what that's what attachment is. But this idea of you know you're kind of holding on to something, you're wanting to force the world to be a certain way. I would say that like that that if there was if there was a single idea that summed up Stoicism to most people, it's this idea of the dichotomy of control. And for Buddhism, I think it's that idea of detachment of the self or kind of Dissolving of the self to not be attached to, to other things or certain outcomes, and so I think that's there's a certain kind of flavor there, in in that it's not just the root of suffering is these false beliefs, but there's a certain kind of flavor to the false beliefs that they share in common. I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. That's exactly right. Another area where there's just so much overlap is this focus on impermanence. So both Marcus Aurelius and Seneca have numerous passages where they go over our mistaken beliefs about the facts that things will be permanent and suggest both exercises and reflections on the nature of constant transformation, the fact that our lives are temporary Often short and uncertain, and I think right there they are at home in the Buddhist tradition. But also, the Buddhist tradition, I think, offers ways to enrich the Stoic themes of impermanence. You have the the focuses of practicing on breath, watching the breath, watching sensations arise. Uh, and depart and these are sorts of things that the stoics don't t- don't talk about so much of these kind of exercises also help one internalize the reality of impermanence that surrounds that surrounds uh, everything
0: yeah for the stoics the impermanence is going to be more memento mori you know remember the fact that you're going to die view from above, kind of take this take this broader perspective that doesn't involve being focused in your life or maybe looks, spans over a period of time. But as you said, the, the the, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting question for, you know, as Caleb and the kind of project we're doing at Stoa, which is this idea. I know sometimes with mindfulness, there's this idea that like, well, the Stoics aren't, you know, the Stoics don't talk about meditation or the Stoics don't talk about, they certainly talk about mindfulness and, and, and sort of training your focus or your attention, but not in this kind of. There's many. I think meditation as a tradition has been something that's been built up from Eastern religions and philosophy and from Buddhism. But I, I think there's that there's that point here, which is like, look, if these things are similar in their practice and they're trying to achieve something, which is this like you know this this knowledge of impermanence, for example, then Buddhism is just figured out this other strategy through years of trial and error of achieving that. And so that's because Stoicism and Buddhism are so similar here, we can kind of pull over that mindfulness meditation practice and it can kind of slot in without kind of bastardizing or ruining the Stoic tradition. Mm-hmm. It's, it, 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 it slots in because it's a similar kind of project and it's something that somebody else doing a similar kind of project, the Buddhists figured out really work, right?
1: Right, right. Yeah, I think exactly. I think this, both Buddhists and Stoics, promote what Pierre Hadot calls spiritual exercises. These practices that involve, you know, radically changing what one is, changing one's mode being to either becoming more stoic, becoming more Buddhist, and where they have different forms of meditation. And I think the Stoics, in particular can learn a lot from the Buddhist forms as you know, you have these two aspects of meditation, that it promotes certain kinds of mental states. It promotes attention. Of course, that's something the Stoics are always talking about to the so the extent that that is true, I think that's something that Stoics should be heavily invested in, exceptionally interested in. And then there's also this other aspect where, Meditation can help you come to experiential insight into the nature of reality. And this is possibly an area where there's going to be more conflict. You know, one of those, that one of the insights Buddhists have, or think one will come to, at least further down the line, further down the path, as you become more expert, as you start moving, is that those advanced levels are this, you know, seeing that there's no self. I think that, you know, of course, there are question marks. Is that something you can actually learn? In meditation? Is that something that's actually true? And the Stoics are at least going to deny that on some understandings of the phrase, they're going to deny the no self doctrine. But nonetheless, I think you can see with meditation, you can come to better internalize some of these ideas around impermanence, how the frustration of desire leads to suffering, noticing things that people. Discuss in you know, mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy about you know you are not your thoughts. Often, the way we fuse with our thoughts causes an exceptional amount of suffering. So, both of those aspects, uh, I think, are are important for for Stoics. Uh, though, though I recognize that, especially as you get into the area with insight, the insight one can come to from meditation, there's going to be more more debate.
0: Yeah, very cool. I mean, yeah, I think that's right. I think those are what I see as the initial similarities.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, what what do you think in terms of coming to some uh, some of the uh, differences? What what differences stand out to you so far from this tradition I mean, and I, these two traditions?
0: I think we hit on I think we hit on one earlier in, in my uh, in this conversation, which is that difference in the conception of self. So, as you said, the minimalist self in Stoicism versus the no self in Buddhism. I think it's a big difference because it kind of changes what the project is, right? Like the project, in, the project in Stoicism is you want to be the best you you can be, right? You want to be awesome. It's just what awesomeness looks like is not what most people think it looks like. It looks like this, this sole focus on character and virtue, but it is really about cultivating the self. It is the same kind of project as the person who tries to get rich or... Tries to you know become famous or tries to have lots of pleasure. It's like everybody's trying to live the best life possible, and the Stoics just have a slightly have a a very different answer to that. But but it is focused on being the best you possible. And so the no self, I think, it's like wow, they're doing something entirely different here. Once you kind of introduce that idea.
1: Yeah, yeah. I suppose one thing you 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 could come to is well, there's some there's some overlap in terms of. At least restricting what you identify with, for especially Epictetus, you know what you are in the Stoic picture is a minimal thing. It's you know this these sort of these rational faculties. It's not you don't identify closely with any indifference. You don't identify closely with even your body. But I think and I think you are right that however at the end of the day there is going to be a significant difference in terms of how buddhists and stoics define what define what the self is so maybe that's the sort of thing that only comes up for advanced buddhists i know in my conversation with gregory lopez he essentially argued argued something like this that you know this is a significant difference but in terms of practitioners most buddhist practitioners are not going to be at that no self level so that's you know that's one plausible thought here but I agree 100% that at least at the philosophical level, that's going to be an important difference. And it's an interesting argument whether, okay, given that there is that difference, maybe even though Buddhists aren't going to get there, or it's going to take a lot of work to get there. The fact that they have that as a target is going to be mean there are going to be differences on the path that they're, they're walking.
0: Yeah, totally. Good point.
1: Yeah, yeah. To me, one main difference is I think in Buddhism, you have this focus on, eliminating suffering experiencing tranquility as opposed to a more strictly stoic focus which you know as you said is you know being an excellent person or in traditional stoic language living in accordance with nature which is not about say subjective internal states or even about you know, managing one's desires explicitly, although that is a focus of the project, I think that's potentially significant differences between the two traditions. So I'm trying to think if, if there's any, you know, what sort of actions or lives would, those, would that difference result in?
0: I mean, it's the same kind of thing as Epicureanism though, right? Where Epicurean says, look, I'm going to be virtuous because that ends up being the happiest kind of life. And the Stoic says, no, I'm going to be, virtuous because that's the best kind of life and it also happens to have very little suffering in it like the actions of the epicurean and the stoic differ very little on that philosophical level i mean the practices of the schools look different but the 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 epicureans are still pro-virtue and it seems the same thing here with the Buddhists, right you're still pro-virtue because that's the path to eliminating suffering so it seemed it seems to me there's no necessary difference at an action level, although I guess you might end up in some sort of. the The way you put it is is, is the way that I would think about it is is there's not going to be any difference until you've got to pick one. So if there ever comes up a circumstance where you have to pick one, you have to pick between living in accordance with nature or living virtuously, and eliminating suffering. Well, then the, then that come, then then that matters for the Stoics and the Epicureans. You know which one to pick, mm-hmm. and so. I guess in the Buddhist picture is that ever a choice does that ever come up maybe seems maybe not because maybe they're they're not they're talking about kind of a kind of a more cosmic type of suffering than the epicureans who are literally talking about like oh i've you know i've got a blister on my foot or something like the epicureans are literally talking about just day to day suffering and and it's not clear to me that the that the Buddhists are talking about that or that the Buddhists will ever be in a position to have to choose between virtue and that kind of suffering in that kind of way.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that remains, that remains to be seen. You know, If I think about some of these existing modern Buddhists, do they promote ideas that Stoics cannot sign up for? My sense is probably not, although, of course, there are going to be disagreements. There are disagreements within Stoic circles about what living in accordance with nature looks like. And they're going to be significant, but are they more significant between the differences you're going to see in different modern Western Buddhist sects? I'm not so sure. So you have a difference in focus. Perhaps that's a uh, significance in terms of you know where your attention is going to lie, how you think about building your life. But I mean, as as far as I can see, there's not a huge. As I think you're basically right that there's not a huge difference in terms of what the virtuous life looks like that, that comes to mind. So what else do you got in terms of differences? I
0: mean, mean, we've hit on this briefly as well, but there's this idea, as, as you noted, this idea of kind of experiential knowledge or this idea of, in Buddhism, of meditation or the subjective experience of meditating as being a means by which, like maybe even meditating on the same proposition for an extended period of time as a way of kind of revealing a nuance to that or a different kind of understanding of that in a way that I don't think the Stoics, I think the Stoics are more, and I think this might actually be a failure of Stoicism. I think one of the things that I think Stoicism doesn't account for properly is this difference between propositional and experiential knowledge. It leans too much. I think Stoicism leans too much on this idea that, you know, as long as you have a strong foundation in logic, If the propositions are laid out to you and they're evident, that will necessitate you to reach the light conclusion. And I think anybody who's gone about the messy act of living feels like, well, there's something missing there. It's a bit more complicated. And the Stoics don't really have this this complex picture of the subconscious to appeal to or this real experiential knowledge language to appeal to. But it seems like the Buddhists do, or if they don't, they are at least leaning into it more in their practices, which I think is cool. It's just trying to close the gap between you know, the Stoics by the way it's this gap that Epictetus talks about, you know, you've 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 learned the this tenets of stoicism, you've endorsed them. Now what are you waiting for? And one way to read that is like, you know, you you gotta work, you gotta put your work in, you gotta pay, you gotta pay, you gotta pay up and do your side of the the bargain. But the other way way of reading that is the question is. What what are these people waiting for? What is the gap from somebody who's endorsed the premises and taking them to be true and wants to be a Stoic and why are they failing? And it seems like the Buddhists have kind of, the Stoics have these practices, but you don't have this thing of like, you know, a bunch of Stoics going to a secluded area, for example, and kind of engaging in these practices in a kind of experiential way. Then in, in the way I can think of a kind of Stoic Buddhist monk or Buddhist meditation practice, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think you're, of course you see experiential practices in stoicism, but they don't have the same emphasis. So I think Marcus Aurelius, when he's doing the view from above, that is an experiential practice. It's not like he's coming onto some new proposition in the same way one does when one's doing logical exercises. But... That being said, you don't have, you have much more of a focus on reason, logic, systematic and explicit reasoning in the Stoic tradition. And of course, I recognize there's uh, Buddhist logic and so on. But I do think that as a broad brush is true that you have, that's a significant difference in how the Stoics and Buddhists might tend to spend their time and one where on the margin perhaps many buddhist types could become more stoic and perhaps some stoics sought to move closer in the in the buddhist direction
0: yeah definitely in terms of, in terms of other differences I and mean, those are the, really the ones that stand out to me anything else in your view kelly
1: yeah let me see i think i think Once, if you get really into the theory, this focus on reason and this view of stoic psychology is going to be different from Buddhist psychology. You know, we have this episode on Epictetus' psychology. I don't think that's how Buddhists see the mind exactly in terms of being faced with impressions, assenting to them, and so on. Again, that's, I think, a specific way the different amounts of focus on different forms of knowledge comes, comes into play.
0: I think you're right, though, that we've been keeping this conversation at the level of action, right? And at the end of the day, if you zoom out far enough and we took, like if we came into this conversation, we said Stoicism versus Aristotelianism, and we weren't, we didn't know as much about Aristotle or Epicureanism. There's a way of looking at those and saying, well, they're actually pretty similar. They have this emphasis on virtue, They are not advocating for anybody to be terrible people. Like there's a way of looking at broad strokes, but these are, you know, these are philosophies of way of life in terms of actions. There's no culture that I think has had an incredibly different conception of what a good life looks like. Maybe the cynics go that far, maybe the, the, but, but in most cases, good lives are going to look pretty, you know, you're kind to your others, only suffering where needed, you're active in the community, things like this. And so, I think there's going to be some similarities between Stoicism and Buddhism at that level, but I think if you come to these as philosophies, in terms of a metaphysical explanation, again a psychological explanation, a meaning of life explanation, there's going to be very very different. You know, ethically we might see some some broad stroke similarities, you know, seven out of ten similarity, but in terms of those other things, it's going to be very very different. We didn't we didn't really have the time to dig into that in this episode, but I'm just, yeah, those are not going to be they're not going to be the same there.
1: Yeah, that's definitely worth stating. I think there are many fruitful similarities. There is rich overlap, but especially as you start zooming in to some of these main doctrines, you're going to start noticing some of the differences. And although maybe it might be difficult to come up with some broad strokes, differences in terms of you know actions, perhaps those might become more obvious in specific contexts that, that you're faced with. One other aspect I I did want to add in in the reason versus experiential knowledge debate in terms of something I think the Stoics got right just is is this idea that our judgments do influence our experiences. And one critique of many modern Buddhists that I think is a powerful one is this idea that they state what you will come to learn in meditation, these truths of you know emptiness, there being no self, and then those statements, those judgments actually inform what people experience in meditation, so you can imagine I think other kinds of beliefs, other judgments you know, might shape people's meditative experiences differently and it's a one mistake that i think some people make is thinking that these meditative experiences are pure and not uh, at all influenced by our judgments
0: so the idea there is that you're not if you're meditating for a certain function or you're meditating sorry just to clarify at this point You've been, you've been given a prompt for your meditation, so your meditation is not accessing the you know, essential nature of the world. It's exploring a prompt. Is that what you mean?
1: Yeah. There's, so I think if you're, if you're given the idea that in meditation, what you experience is entirely internal, And it's what philosophers might call some idea of indirect realism. All you have access to are these things inside of your head. And that's going to shape what your meditation experience is like. You know, you'll think, I'm coming into contact with all these impressions uh, and so on. Whereas if someone else has a meditation course and they're given all these ideas about what philosophers call direct realism, this idea that no you don't actually experience things inside your head you actually encounter the world as it is you wouldn't think of things in terms of oh i noticed some sensation arising in my mind or i noticed some thoughts instead you would categorize things as i noticed explicit pain in my body if i was doing open eye meditation i didn't see the image of a plant in front of me i saw the plant. And that, you know, maybe it's a sort of abstract philosophical example, but when you get down to things like, you know, I have an experience of no self in meditation, it's hard to see how that just isn't influenced by the judgments you have surrounding meditation and the fact that, you know, all these meditation teachers told you that you would come to see reality as it is through meditation and that involves seeing that there is no self, things are impermanent and so on. But perhaps if they had said something completely different, and I think it's plausible, you would have had a different kind of experience. Cool, that's interesting.
0: I mean, maybe, and maybe that's a difference when it comes down to that. You know, Stoics are very explicit about that indirect realism, as you said. Stoics are very explicit. We only ever have access to our impressions, right? And so that's obviously when you're meditating or when you're reflecting, you're reflecting upon your impressions of the world. So that might be a difference there. That's interesting. Well, yeah, that, that's a really cool thought, Kyle.
1: Cool. All right. Anything else? No, that was great. All right. Uh, yeah, thanks for doing that. That was fun. Awesome, thank you. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic Theory and Practice a week, just two short emails, on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more Stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.